Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. All right. Well, welcome again. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are kicking off a new series today that we are entitling Groundswell. Groundswell. Um, what we're going to be doing is examining the Gospel of John. There are four Gospel accounts, four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be using John's Gospel uh, and looking at the Jesus that fills its pages. And the reason is, is quite simple. Um, John really sort of emphasizes the divinity of Jesus in a way that the other three uh, sort of toned down, or the way it was said in, in uh, seminary. John makes explicit what the other three leave as implicit. Uh, that is, that Jesus is the, the very form of God. He is uh, the, the visible image of the invisible God who, uh, when we see him, we have seen his glory. We have seen the Father's only Son. And the reason why we're doing this is because we feel like God is inviting us into a season of encountering his presence. The way we've described it is, it's kind of the difference between talking on FaceTime and talking face-to-face. FaceTime, you get the person you get their humor or lack thereof, like you get everything about their personality, but there's a difference when they're sitting in the room with you, when you're touching them, when, when you're able to hold hands, like share a cup of coffee, there's a difference. And we feel like God is saying to us that he wants to step into the space, allow us to encounter his presence in a different way. And that's really important, guys, because the presence of God, I don't know if you notice, I feel like it's in short supply right now. I don't know where it go, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a tragedy because when we read the New Testament, when we read uh, the gospel accounts and the acts of the apostles and the letters of Paul, we can't get away from the reality that there's a presence that is so compelling them. They're not just the type of people that show up on Sundays and then live their lives and write the, you know, the, the, the Bible down. No, there is something that has utterly transformed their lives. There's a presence that has captured their hearts and their minds and their bodies and has snapped the trajectory of the course of their lives in a different direction. One scholar puts it this way, talking about the claim of the resurrection, the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead and that his spirit was poured out on those who worshiped him, those who followed him. This is how he puts it. It, it meaning the claim of the resurrection, it is the report of men and women who had suffered the devastating defeat of their master's death the devastating defeat of their master's death, but who in a very short time were proclaiming an immediate experience of his living presence beyond the tomb and who were, it seems, willing to suffer privation, imprisonment, torture, and death rather than deny that experience. And it is the report of a man, that man is Paul, who wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament, a man who had never known Jesus before the crucifixion and who had once persecuted followers of Jesus, but who also believed that he had experienced the risen Christ with such shattering power that he too preferred death over apostasy. That is what we see. That is what we encounter when we read the New Testament. These, are, these characters have experienced a, present, a presence of the risen Jesus that they say is so real, so, so much more real than anything else that they're willing to suffer 
privation, imprisonment, torture, and death. And even Paul, who did not encounter Jesus during his ministry, who he only emerges where he's persecuting Jewish followers of Jesus to try to like uh, purge Judaism of this, this heresy, essentially, from his viewpoint, he has an encounter that is so real to him that it utterly changes the course of his life. And he starts worshiping Jesus. What is this presence? What is this presence that fills the pages? Which, and when it does, when the presence fills us, fills the pages, it drowns out everything else. It drowns out identities. It drowns out agendas that we have. It drowns out past seasons that have held us back. When we encounter that presence, it drowns everything else and we step into something else. What is this experience? What is this presence? And what is God saying to us today? And so John opens his story with a really beautiful prologue. Probably many of you have heard this prologue that Alicia read. That's uh, very classic. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things have been made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. <laughs> in him is life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light has shined into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In 1956, Noam Chomsky discovered that there is a universal language hardwired into the human brain. He did. But it's not, what he discovered is, it's not the words themselves. Uh, I, I can speak English. English has certain vocabulary words. It has certain ways my tongue moves in my mouth. Um, it, it's not the words. You can speak Spanish or Korean. Or, there's, there's an endless number of languages that can be invented. It's not the words themselves. What's universal is the structure underneath it, the grammar, the syntax. It, it's, it's not a particular cryptocurrency. It's the blockchain. You see what I did there, right? It's the blockchain. That's what's hardwired. It's not a particular team. It's the league itself and how the game of basketball functions. What he found is that language is infinite. How words can be put together is limitless. Uh, you can put nouns and verbs around each other and adjectives anytime and any way you want. Greek is really difficult for that reason. When learning biblical Greek, it, doesn't, it has different rules. So like the verb can be anywhere at once in the sentence. So what they teach you is the first thing you do when you read a Greek sentence is look for the verb, and then you build it out, out uh, from, from that. So the, the, the words, the possibilities of words and languages are infinite, but there is only one grammar. A noun is always a noun anywhere in the world. A verb is always a verb. Chomsky proved this idea with the sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. That's how he proved it which there's a lot to this, but if you think about it, if it's colorless, it can't be green. Ideas don't sleep. It's very odd. It makes no sense. And yet I read that colorless green ideas sleep furiously and it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. Yes, that works. So he proved that there is only one language, which is the grammar, which that's an interesting point when you think about it. There's a universal language, which is the grammar itself. So then we strip away and sort of bring it down to the common denominator. What do you need uh, uh, in order to have a grammar? Well, you need a subject and a verb, a subject and a predicate. Everything else is expanded out of that. 
I don't know if you had to do diagramming sentences. Anyone diagram sentences as a kid? Yes. Anyone <clears throat> hate diagramming sentences as a kid? I hated it. I was so bad, which is ironic um, because I sort of work with words for a living. Uh, but I seriously, Mrs. Ellington, man, I still remember her. She, she, did, she did not agree with my creativity. I'm just going to say that, all right? You can't put me in a box, Mrs. Ellington. You can give me a C. You're allowed to do that, but you cannot put me in a box. Um, but like, it's diagramming sentences. And when you sort of distill it down, you have a subject and a verb. That's all you need. And so you build out of that. You can modify the subject, modify the verb. You can do all sorts of stuff with it. But then that's fascinating because if you have a subject and a verb, a noun and a verb, a subject and a predicate, as soon as you have that, you have a story, don't you? In the beginning, clause, the word was. The word was. John York, he's a BBC producer and editor for many, many years. He wrote an article in The Atlantic in 2016. And basically the title of the article is, all stories are the same. He did not hide his punchline. <laughs> you know exactly what he's proving. And, and basically he had, studied, he had studied stories and legends and myths throughout human history across diverse cultures. He drilled into their themes, their motifs, their values, and he found there is only one story. That when you go to uh, a diverse culture um, and you ask a child, tell me a story, their story is going to take this same form, this same theme. He writes, storytelling has a shape. It dominates the way all stories are told, and it can be traced back not just to the Renaissance, but to the very beginnings of the recorded word. It's a structure that we absorb avidly, whether in art house or airport form, and it's a shape that may be, though we must be careful, a universal archetype. He doesn't go so far to say that this, this structure, this plot line is hardwired into our brains, but he basically says there's only one story. And, and um, movie producers and, and writers, they try to sort of eschew it, they try to create something else, but they're always drawn back to the same story. People always want the same theme. And what he found is it's not the details of the story, it's not the characters, it's the underlying structure, just like language. And the structure, in its simplest form, is three acts. There's awe and discovery. There's conflict and tension. And then there's a resolution of that tension. That is what every human across every society wants. Or we would say, there's creation, there's a fall, and then there's redemption. So John starts his story. In the beginning, he says, the word was. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, it's important that we pause here and sort of double-click that word, not word, double-click God. What do we mean when we say God? Because I don't know if you're like me. I grew up, you know, I was to, when, I, when I sort of pictured God as a kid, I pictured the old white guy sitting in the clouds, right? Big beard, massive forearms. He, God definitely skipped leg day. He was working those forearms. I was very jealous of his forearms as a kid. Probably still am. I don't know. Um, but we, we sort of picture this, this being sitting in the clouds, right? But that means that God is just one being among other beings. And that can't be it. So, so when we sort of push into, what do we mean when we say God? We're not talking about one being among other beings. We're talking about the ground of being itself. We're talking about the ground of existence. 
God, when we say God, God is the limitless possibilities which we all emerge from. The Muslim philosopher Mullah Sadra put it this way, God is not to be found within the realm of beings, for he is the being of all realms. I would say yes. Or a theologian, uh, E.L. Mascal, puts it this way. God is not just one item, albeit the supreme one in a class of beings, but rather the source from which their being is derived. He's not one item in the world. God is the source. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. God is He is. Well, what is God? God is God. (laughs) He will actually announce himself that way to Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses says, what's your name? Who do I say that you are? He says, I am that I am. A perfectly ridiculous and yet grammatically true thing to say. I am what I am. Stay with me. Language is infinite and yet there is but one grammar. The possible stories and details and characters are infinite, and yet there is but one story archetype. God is God, the limitless ground of being itself, and yet there is a word who is with God, who is God, and through whom all things have come into being, and without whom nothing has come into being that exists. No one has ever seen God, says John. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And so God, the source of being, speaks his word into creation. The author writes himself as a character into the story. John would say, in the word has come life, and that life is the light of all mankind. The light has shined into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, John is trying to make the case early on that this word is the key to you experiencing life and light and God and his presence. The word is the key. That's a beautiful start to a story. Where's the conflict? We don't have to go far, John tells us. He was in the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. There is one word of God that brings life and light, and that word, according to John, is a name. To all who receive his word, to all who believe in his name. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth, says John, light and life and presence, that comes through Jesus Christ. That is the name. Believe in that name, he says. I want to pause again for a second and redefine what we mean when we say believe. It's important. For you and I, uh, as products of the Enlightenment, as very Western thinkers uh, growing up in America um, or growing up in the West, Belief for us is a, usually meant as a cognitive thing, right? To believe something means I understand it cognitively. I know how to think about it. I know how to dissect it. I can take the engine apart and reassemble it. Therefore, I believe it works. But that's not at all what is meant in the biblical sense. The word is pistuo. And a better translation, 
to say, to, to believe in his name, to pistuo in his name. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. It's not believe, but trust. To all those who trust in his name. What is trust? Well, trust is not purely cognitive. It can be, right? Uh, understanding something intellectually is not excluded by trust. We can, we, we can understand how things work and therefore trust it, but we don't have to understand how things work and still trust it. For example, I'm not going to jump off a building. Why? Because I trust gravity. I don't understand how gravity works, but I trust that if I were to jump, it would take me to the ground very fast and very hard. Another example, New York City parking signs. I don't understand those at all, right? But I trust that if I drive my car, I'm going to get a ticket somehow. I'm like, how do I read this? It's this sign. I thought I see the numbers, but it's pointing me to that sign, which points me back to that sign. And, you know, I don't understand how it works, but I trust that I'm going to get a ticket. Virtual bank accounts. Anyone understand how that works? Nope. <laughs> but I trust that, that that number on the screen is somehow related to me, my wife's love. I can't fully intellectually understand it, but I can trust because she has proven it to me that she does love me. See, see, hopefully you're getting a more robust understanding of what is meant by belief. When we're told to believe in his name, we don't necessarily have to understand his name, though that's not excluded. That's part of it. But you don't have to. Trust is experiential. Trust is built on a life of experience, which means we know what you trust based on the shape your life takes. And the promise of John is that if you trust in the word's name, you will experience life and light in the gift of being children of God. Now you're sitting here, you're like, ah, I see where this is going. Trust in the name of Jesus. Great sermon, pastor. Really compelling, really, really stirring. Uh, not predictable in the slightest. Trust the name of Jesus. Only issue, pastor, that's purely theoretical. How do you trust a name? That makes no sense. To which I would respond, oh, actually, it does make sense. <laughs> you and I, we, we trust in names all the time. We wake up, we step outside our door, and we start trusting names. It starts shaping the course of our life. Let me try some out. I'm going to try some names and tell me as I say some of these names if something jumps up inside of you that maybe suggests that you trust this name uh, in your life. Ready? Let me try this one out. You're a failure. Like, what have you done with your life? Like mid-30s, a couple degrees. I mean, maybe you have a kid or something, but like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you're not in the job you want to be. You're not in the career that you thought you were going to be in. You failed. Don't raise your hand, but anyone trust that name? Anyone feel something go off? You're a failure. Let, let me try another one. You're ugly. Sorry. The world, we know the world's standards, and we can clearly see you do not meet up to them. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, it's just the way it is, but you, you are ugly. Anyone, anyone trust that name? I trusted that name for years, even after I was married, and my wife was telling me a different name. I still didn't believe her. Let me try this one. You're an addict, and you're always just going to be an addict. That's all you are. You can't beat it. You can't get clean, whether it's porn or drugs or alcohol or workaholism 
or you and your spouse having the exact same fight, you're addicted to this thing. You can't get clean. That's all you are and you know it. Anyone trust that name? You're shameful. That thing you did, you and I both know what it is. That season in your life, like if, if I really were to know it, man, I would be ashamed of you. Everyone would be ashamed of you. They wouldn't want to be your friend. You're shameful. Anyone trust that name? It goes on and on. We trust names every day. You're a bad mother. You're unlovable. You're going nowhere in life. You're unintelligent. You're mediocre. You're ordinary, and you will amount to nothing. We wake up, and we trust names every single day. The shape of our life, what fills our hearts and minds, is evidence of the names that we trust, that we give ourselves over to. Or the worst, this is the worst name. I hear this name all the time in New York. It's the most dangerous. I pray to God you never get called this name. Because if you start trusting in this name, there may be no hope for you. You ready for this one? You're such a success. Oh man, look what you've done. Look how great you are. Man, you, you, you sort of pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, didn't you? Oh, you've made it. You're so popular. You're strong. You're self-reliant. You're independent. If you trust that name, I don't know if I have any hope for you. We trust names all the time. Whether we believe it or not, we wake up and we trust names. And the issue is we can't hear other names for us. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. And um, I encourage you all to watch it. It's incredible. And there's a scene in there where he's talking, uh, well, we're talking to Francois Clemens. So if you watch the show, Francois Clemens, he was a, a regular character on the show. He had different roles. He was... He was the police officer and the postman and did different things. And also, as we learned in the, in the documentary, he was a gay black man in the 60s and the 70s, where it was really hard uh, to be uh, those two things. And so he shares how he had a father and a stepfather, and they both you know, rejected him. They both didn't love him. And uh, on, the, on the show, Mr. Rogers would always say, uh, when, when their, their time together was coming to a close, he'd say, I love you, Francois. Um, and, and one day, Francois is telling the story. And he goes, um, they're standing there on the, and they're, you know, they're, they're filming. And Mr. Rogers goes, I love you, Francois. And then they cut, and Francois goes, whoa, Fred, talking to Mr. Rogers, goes, Fred, that felt like you were talking to me right there. And he looks at him and goes, Francois, I've been talking to you for two years, and you finally heard me. See, and it's a beautiful story, and it really gets at the heart of the gospel. But I think this is what, what's going on. I think God is saying, Guys, friends, I'm talking to you all the time, but you can't hear me. You don't hear me say you're so beautiful because all you believe subconsciously is I'm so ugly. You don't hear me say you are my child, you are my beloved, because all you hear is the world saying, God, man, you're shameful. We trust names all the time. As A.W. Tozer puts it, everything hinges on our being able to hear, and yet we have trained our ears not to listen. We can't hear him, which is why Fred Rogers says the words to us. And it takes us two years for us to wake up and realize, oh, he's been talking to me the whole time. The whole time. In my story, like I said, I believed, I trusted that I was ugly for most of my life. I have a lot of scars on my face and my body. And even after I got married, even after my wife would tell me over and over, Russell, you're beautiful. I love you. I'm so attracted to you. It took me a while to realize that subconsciously I didn't believe her. I did not trust her. Why? Because my story had not proven that out. 
She had to continue to chisel away and chisel away and get to the root of me. I thought that I was not beautiful. And so here's the thing. When we trust these names, we develop other ways of, of, of um, living. So for me, because I believed that I was so ugly, I became a furious worker. I developed a tremendous work ethic, an unhealthy work ethic. And this was all subconscious. I only developed the language in the last couple of years. But essentially, this is what I believed. I looked out of the world and I, I saw that ugly things don't receive love. I am ugly. I will not receive love. But I also saw that people who work hard and achieve things, successes, they do receive love. So if I'm not going to get love over here, then I'm going to work as hard as I can and you're going to love me on the basis of that. And we do this all the time. Because of those names that I read out, and maybe I didn't read out your name, but because of that name which fills you with such shame, you've developed uh, desiring other names. And this entire time, John is saying, stop, there is a name that will bring you life and light and will make you children of God, will encounter the presence. Even though, and see, here's what's, here's what's fascinating. Even though I didn't trust Anna's words and Anna's my wife, even though I didn't trust her words that said, I love you, you are beautiful, even though I didn't trust her, Deep down, I wanted to believe that it was true. I wanted to believe that I was beautiful, even though, even though I didn't. In the same way that Francois wanted to believe that he was worthy of love, even though it had been communicated differently throughout his entire life. Which means even when our lives prove we're trusting lesser names, we still hope beyond hope that that's not the final chapter of the story. We hope that there's another chapter, a resolution, a redemption. We're holding on to the archetype of the one story. You can use words, there's only one grammar. You can tell a story, there's only one plot line. My wife is a wedding cinematographer. We film, I, I've, I've been her second shooter for the last couple of years. We film weddings all the time, all sorts of weddings, all sorts of beliefs. It is mind boggling to me. Everyone wants to believe in sacrificial love. That is the image. That is the central image that everyone sort of wants to pour out all they are and be like, it is possible for two people to love each other so much they're willing to sacrifice their lives for each other. Even if they admit that they're not going to be strong enough to do it, and even if they're like atheists or have different worldviews which seem to suggest that it kind of doesn't have a purpose because it's all going to go back in the box anyway. Still, everyone wants to believe that sacrificial love is the deepest truth of the world. Well, what if, friends, what if we all want to believe that because it is? What if at the core of existence, at the core of us coming into consciousness, is a creator who would sacrificially give of himself to love us? What if that's it? What if that's because the one story is deep in us? deep in us if we'd be willing to listen to it and not drown it out with other names. What's going to save us from this is the question. Everything hinges on us being able to hear and yet we've trained our ears not to listen. What is going to save us? Well, John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and lived among us. 
See, what is so incredible about the story of Jesus, about why I call myself a follower of Jesus, is because I refuse to listen to God's word as he was speaking it. I refused to listen that he loved me. I trusted other names. And so God, rather than give up, chose to speak to us in a language we would listen to. The word became human. The word lived with me, joined me face to face to deliver God's message. And we have seen his glory, says John, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth, which is why the offer of Jesus is so radically different from any other offer. Because God is not offering you answers. He's not offering you doctrine. He's not offering you a religious path to walk full of like rules and laws and stuff. He's not offering you any of those things. He's not offering you the promise of prosperity or anything else. He is offering you himself. He is offering you his love and his joy of friendship. He's offering you his presence, which is why it's so radical. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The first experiential truth you and I have, before we know anything else about the world, the first experiential thing that you and I trust is what? We trust the love of our mother. We come into the world and before anything else happens, we are put into the arms of our mom who holds us and who communicates through our bodies touching that we are hers, we are adored, that everything else can go wrong, but this, this will be true. This is the first truth. That is what this is about. This is what God's after. To trust in the name of Jesus, friends, it's like coming back home to mama after you've been away for a long time. And I'm so sorry if you had a bad mother. Mine was incredible. And I know no matter what happens, no matter how my life turns out, I know I can go back home to mama. She's gonna have cornbread on and coffee ready. And she probably can't hold me in her arms anymore, and that's okay. <laughs> but I know mom's gonna be there. To trust in the name of Jesus is to trust her name, her words, more than anyone else's. To trust in the name of Jesus is to trust his words, where God has been speaking it throughout creation. He's written into our hearts. It's the one structure. It's the one story of sacrificial love. And everyone wants it. Everyone wants it, apparently. What if we want it because it is the most real thing? What if we want it and we can have it? We can have it because the word became flesh. He spoke to us in our language. And notice, this is what's so incredible. This is what's so incredible. The name of Jesus, he attaches, the word of God, he attaches it to the form of a story. And what is that story? What is the story of God become flesh? God sacrifices the quality with God, considers it not something to be held onto. He comes in the form of a servant, He's found in human likeness and he humbles himself even further to death on a cross. He's saying, hey, you won't trust my words to you? Fine, I'll speak to you through the names you do understand. You believe you're ugly? Look at me, I'm now ugly. I'm dying on a cross, grotesque. You believe you have no power? Look at me, I have no power. I've given it all up to join you where you are. Look at me, you believe you're a failure? I'm now a failure. My 12 closest friends have deserted me. The names that you and I all believe about ourselves, Jesus, God in the flesh has joined us in those names. 
And his offer is simple. Give me those names and let me give you a new one. Give me what you think about yourself. Look, I've joined you where you are. What is that name? You think you're so full of shame? What you've done is so, so full of shame? Look at me, I've joined the shame. I've joined it. Give me those names and I will give you a new one. I'll tell you what I really think about you. I'll tell you why you're alive. Jesus, Jesus' name, he takes ours so that we can pay attention to the word he has to give us. And the word is simple. You are a child of God. You are worthy. You are worthy no matter what happens, no matter what has happened. You are worthy. Why? Because you're a child of God. There will always be room for me at my mom's house. Always. Because I'm her son. That is more fundamental than anything else. Those names you believe about yourself, friends, they're not real. Stop trusting them. And I know it takes time. I know it takes time, but stop trusting them. Look at Jesus. Look at the action as he's made himself smaller and smaller and smaller and uglier and uglier and less and less powerful as he's joined you in those names. God has joined you in those names to give you your real name. Jesus is the key that unlocks the life and light and friendship with God because you are the beloved. You are adored. You are forgiven. You are beautiful. You are a success just by being who you are, loved by Jesus. Give him your name and let him give you a new one. That's the one story, friends, that we all want. That's the one word, which is the truest word there is. Would we all receive it today? Would we all trust it? Would we dare? And maybe you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, and that's totally fine, but would you perhaps feel some stirring and dare in this next moment to see what would it look like to make an exchange? What would it look like to give him the names I believe about myself and to receive something new? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads and to pray with me. And before I start praying, I want you to conjure up, and it's probably right there on the surface, what is that name you believe about yourself? What is that name you trust? What is it? Is it, a, is it something you're ashamed of? Is it a mistake you made? Is it a mistake you continue to make? Is it an unkind word that your parents said about you when you were a child that you just cannot get rid of? Is it something that maybe no one's even said to you, but you can, just, you can sense it, you can smell it in the water? It's all over society, and so you believe it about yourself. And what I'm going to ask you to do in this next moment is to picture yourself holding the name in your hands, whatever that image may be, holding the name in your hands. And then amazingly, you look up and you see a Jewish man hanging on a cross, suffocating and bleeding out. And you're told that this is not just any man. 
this right here, though it is unlike any other claim, this Jewish man dying is the creator of the universe who has given up his glory, given up his power, given up all the names we wish we had, and he's come for you. He's up there for you. And his offer for those who would receive it, he's saying, give me your name. Throw it on me. Throw it on my body. It can handle it. Give me your name, child, and I will tell you who you really are. Trust in my name, child, the name of Jesus, and find a life and a light and a love that will put you in the midst of the most fascinating and amazing adventure you've ever lived in. It won't be easy. It'll have struggles and sufferings and hardships, but guess what, child? You will never wonder for a second if you are beautiful or adored or loved because my presence will go with you every step of the way. The rest of those names, they won't stick to you anymore. Jesus, in this moment, we make that exchange. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe there's people in this room who have, who have struggled to trust you because they want to have certain questions answered before they do so, but they sense in their heart your presence. Would they throw their old names at your feet and receive your love in this moment? Maybe this is for the hundredth time, but we need to wake up and do it all over again, God, because we are always tempted to believe the lies of this world, the, the lies of our own heart. We give you our names and we trust yours, Lord. So in this moment, take it all. Take it all. Take everything. The, 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 the names that we regret and make us sad, but also the names that we're proud of. Our identities and our agendas that, that we're proud of, that we don't want to let go of. We want to trust those names. Would you take them both? We want no name, no name to be greater in our hearts and our trust than the name of Jesus. That is the name that we are pledging our life to. That is the name that we are selling everything to go after because in that name, no other name, in that name is life and light and love. And so we receive that as a community as we step more into the fall. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.